0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Last week I made a poll over on our Instagram page and I asked you all if you wanted to hear these episodes in part one and part two or if you'd rather have it all at once and you guys voted, I listened. So from here on out, the episodes will come out in one setting. Um, That means we can get these episodes out quicker to you all and I hope that's something that you continue to enjoy I love to hear feedback. So if you have any other additional feedback, recommendations, suggestions, anything that we can do to improve, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, You can reach out by email. Our email is cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at cowboystories underscore podcast. Um, But with that being said, let's get started into today's episode. Today, I had the opportunity to visit with Don Lindsay. He and his wife Denise live in Venice, Utah. He shares a lot of his history with us. He talks about his time spent working for the Gurneys and um, working out on the Robbers Roost. Um, Nowadays, he does a lot of horsemanship, a lot of horse training for people. He has put out a lot of content, a lot of videos um, that can be pretty helpful for you if you're looking for a way to improve on your horsemanship. You can check out his website at dlhorsemanship.com and see all of the different things that he has to offer to you. Um, and with that being said, let's get started. <music>
1: Okay, I'm Don Lindsay. Um, I was born in Provo, Utah. My dad always had horses, but he always told me you can't make a living riding a horse. Um, so he had restaurants. So I cooked hamburgers until I got a driver's license and I left home. Um, and I actually did. When I was 16, I moved out onto a ranch. We lived out in Strasburg, Colorado. Then there was a rancher had a place about ten miles north of town that came in the restaurant one night when I was working there. I asked him if he needed any help, and he said yes. He says, "Come out," and I was out there the next day after school, and and I worked for him for uh, the rest of my high school years and for about a year after high school, and that was. I'd always ridden horses, you know, follow my dad around. Uh, back before it was illegal, my dad used to, like to go out on the deserts in southeast Utah and chase wild horses. So that's probably kind of where I learned to ride. And then this rancher, he was my first exposure to actually like starting colts. And he had rope horses and he had a few cotton horses. And. He was a good horseman. He was more old school, a little harsher than what we like to be nowadays. But he had about 400 head of cows. But I found out in a hurry that being a cowboy out in eastern Colorado meant you spend all summer baling hay and you spend all winter feeding (laughs) hay and you'd get to ride your horse for about two weeks in the spring and about two weeks in the fall. Gosh. And... (laughs) So I thought, well, that's, that's not what I pictured in my mind of being a cowboy. But luckily we did, like we roped about every night after, you know, after we got done bailing hay, we'd roped about every night and, and started a lot of colts. And I did still get to ride quite a bit, but I didn't really like the tractor work myself.
2: Yeah. I don't um, believe, yeah. yeah. Is that kind of where you got the foundation of of how to start colts or had you done that before?
1: Well, my dad had started a few colts and I'd watched him, but he, I really had no method. He just, my dad's horses really liked him. You know, my dad could go out in a big pasture and whistle and his horses would all come running to him and his horses really liked him, but he didn't really know anything about getting a horse very handy. You know, he could ride them and get along with them, but you know, it, it, took him a half acre to get one turned around,
2: mm-hmm.
1: going the other way. Um, but he loved it, you know. And working for this rancher, like I said, he had rope horses and cutting horses, and that, he gave me some exposure to getting horses handy or getting them where you could really do something on them. You know, I, I was intrigued by it. Um,
2: That's cool.
1: But then... I got out of high school and worked for him for a while, and I heard of big money being made other places. So I I went and I worked in the oil field for about a year, and then I heard of money being made on construction in southeast Utah. They were building some power plants, and I knew some people that were working there, and they told me about big money. So I packed up everything I owned and moved to Castledale, Utah, and that included two horses and a dog. We were all loaded in my pickup and moved to castledale utah and i worked construction for a while but i ended up just i didn't like my life you know i i didn't want to. i didn't like getting up every morning knowing i had to go do the same thing and, you know all the time i always usually had a horse around i was riding after work for somebody or cold i was starting but I finally just decided after doing that for about eight years, I was going to go be a cowboy. It's what I really always wanted to do. And I heard of a guy that's based out of Salina, Utah, that had cattle on desert uh, down by Hanksville. Plus he had cattle on the desert kind of out by Milford on the West Desert in Utah. And he needed help gathering that spring. So I quit my construction job. and had to tighten my belt and went back to being a cowboy. <laughs> and and I've n- never really looked back. I mean, I got a lot of good experiences in my life from the years I spent cowboying. While I was working for him, I read an article in Western Horseman Magazine about this guy named Ray Hunt and the way he was starting Colts. And I really couldn't believe what I was reading. And then... About the next issue of the Western Horseman Magazine, I saw an article where he was doing a clinic, a cult-starting clinic in Heber City, Utah. So it was a five-day clinic, but I couldn't get five days off. So I went to the first two days of the clinic. And by this time, you know, I was probably 27 years old or so, and I'd been riding horses pretty much my whole life. And I came away from the first two days of his clinic thinking I didn't even have any business riding a horse, what little bit I knew. <laughs> and so I started following him and other people doing things like he did, you know, and I kept working ranches and cowboying. Um, after about eight years, I quit the place I was working for because they had lost i'd moved to hanksville to take care of their desert permit and i bought a house down there and then they lost their blm permit they had down there and he says well you can come over here and stay in a camp trailer down here by our feed lot." and i said well why don't you just figure when we get the cows together this fall i'm going to be done
2: mm-hmm. so
1: i quit him that fall and started asking people if I had Colts to start, and I just started Colts for about a year, which led me to meet a man named A.C. Ecker, because um, living in a town of Hanksville, it was so isolated in such a small town, I didn't really get a lot of horses, and they weren't really very good horses, and somebody said, well, you ought to go talk to A.C. Ecker. He's got a lot of horses over there, and I bet he needs some of them rode." I finally got up the nerve to go talk to him because he was kind of an intimidating person. And I'd heard stories about him where he was kind of unapproachable. I finally went over one day and talked to him and told him I'd quit working for gurneys. And I was just riding horses. And I was wondering if he had any horses that needed riding. He scratched his head for a minute and he says, well, right now I've got about 20.
2: <laughs>
1: I thought, well, I've hit the jackpot. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: and he wanted them ridden at his place, which wasn't too far from my place, which worked out good for me because I didn't have enough pens at my place. I was just kind of getting started in that deal. So I started riding some horses for him, and once in a while he'd have something going on. They were going to go gather some cattle, or he got a contract to gather some wild burros, and he'd hire me just as day help to go help him. And along about fall, I was helping him quite a bit. And the guy who was his full-time ranch hand had quit to go take care of his family's farm. And he asked if I wanted to work for him full-time, so I did. And that was a whole other adventure working for him. I ran year-round on the high desert country, southeast Utah, and his cattle got a little wild. By most people's standards, by some people's standards, they were really wild. <laughs> we uh, we did a lot of roping, catching wild cattle, and getting them out of places where there was no way you could corral them. There was not even any krails. The cattle just lived off in these canyons, and it was pretty pretty much an adventure for about four years.
2: Yeah. Uh, did you have any personal horses that you would ride to help him when you were doing that, or were they all business?
1: <clears throat> Well, at the time when I was working for him, I only I owned one horse is all I owned. And I would take it part of the time. Oh, I'd take it out there, but he had he usually had twenty to thirty horses out there. And you one horse wasn't enough. If you were out yeah. there gonna gonna go out there and ride for a couple of weeks. You know, one horse was not near enough horses. So I would ride mine, I'd ride a few of his and
2: for those people listening who don't know anything about the rooster where it is, can you kind of tell them a little bit about what the country's like out there?
1: Okay. It's, uh, it's in southeast Utah, and it's kind of south of Green River, Utah, and east of Hanksville, Utah. It's high desert, part of the Colorado Plateau. Uh, the elevation goes from right around five thousand feet to about seven thousand feet out at the far east side, so there you had the like the pinyon pine trees and the cedar trees, and out to the far east side, then it started dropping off into some really big canyons. It bordered canyonlands national park um Part of his place on his permit was actually inside of Glen Canyon recreation area. Where oh, you could really? run Yeah, you could run cattle but there were a lot of other restrictions, you know mm-hmm. that made it that made it kind of difficult to run cattle. Uh he was always in a fight with the Park Service about something. But uh it was country where cattle get wild because there was a lot of ways a lot of places they'd get away from you when you got in the trees and the canyons and the rough country and 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 then he never ever gathered all of his cattle you know I don't don't that I know of he never ever did gather them all we when we went out there in the fall together we were basically weaning calves and getting old maverick cattle out of there or old cows that needed to be culled or old bulls Yeah. Um, Basically gathering stuff that he was going to sell. The cows he was going to keep running, they never really got gathered. They might get in the corral to wean their calves, or we might just hold them up in a flat and catch all the calves and load them in trailers. Oh, it was, uh, for a 30-year-old cowboy, it was like living the dream.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it. Do any memories in particular stand out about catching any of those cows, or did you ever have any bad wrecks doing that?
1: No, yeah. Uh, It was almost always, at least once every fall, there was usually a horse that would get a horn in them. Um, No, I don't recall anything real bad, you know, where we had to put a horse down, but they dang sure get you and all his cattle, all his cattle had horns. His dad ran straight Hereford cattle, but AC really liked to rope. And shortly after his dad died, he just started running longhorn bulls on them Hereford cattle. And his idea was to sell roping cattle, you know, crossbred roping cattle. So all the cattle had horns. Um, it was interesting because when you get way out on the outskirts there was not hardly any longhorn in them cattle they were pretty much straight hereford still hmm. um we'd catch old hereford bulls out there that had, were born out there and lived their whole life out there in some of them holes some of them places and uh so they all had horns and i learned the ones that would really get you were the young cows or the young bulls, them big old bulls usually weren't as quick on their feet, you know, and I had horses of mine get, get a horn in them, you know, but I've saw, and it was amazing to me because I saw AC, he carried what he called a vet kid in this little metal box in his truck. And he had some dr- horse drugs in there and, Quite a few things in there, and he I saw him actually stitch up a horse that got its hind quarter ripped by a horn on a cow, and he used uh fiber of a horse's tail to sew it up with that's I pretty thought, no, cool. that that's pretty ingenious you know it's uh he had learned to be self sufficient just from living out of town so much, you know, yeah could pretty much fix fix anything or make anything work.
2: Is that kind of what he grew up doing his whole life? You said his dad? Yeah, his
1: his granddad, his name was Joel Biddlecombe. He went out there and homesteaded a section of ground out there in 1909, which was like 20 years after Butch Cassidy and the outlaw era. Um, he went out there and homesteaded a section of ground. And then when the BLM came into existence, he filed on the belt, you know, got the BLM permit to run out there. And it was big country. The When I worked for AC, the permit was for around 500 head of cattle year round. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting that most people back then didn't do was AC's granddad found all the springs out there and mapped them, and he actually filed on the water rights in all of them springs, which gave him, him gave him quite a bit of leverage with the BLM because they were they would always threaten, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to take your permit, but... They couldn't ever give the permit to anybody else because he owned the water. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that so he was had, really smart. Yeah, so he had some leverage over him. Um You know, now AC's gone and somebody else owns it. and I, I don't know if they still, if they got the water rights to them springs or not, I don't know what happened to them. Hmm. But I thought that was really smart for somebody clear back then to have that much foresight to tie up the water rights. Yeah. And some of them springs were just little seeps, you know, but they, they still owned them. (laughs) Nobody else, nobody else could use them.
2: Talking about how on the outskirts of that, you, you just find a little bunch of Hereford cows still out there that didn't have any longhorn in them. I think it'd be cool to go out and just explore all that country and see all the different little pockets and stuff that they, those cows could go in.
1: Yeah, it was, it was interesting. And, Some places like Horseshoe Canyon, uh, it's a big canyon. It's deep, and it's, it's quite long. It actually eventually dumps into the Green River. But in a couple different spots down in the bottom of that canyon, there was a little bunch of wild cattle that just lived there, and they lived their whole life right there. And we would go down there every couple years, we would go down there and try and get what we could get out of there. But usually we had more cattle get away than what you actually got. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I know the park service doesn't like them being there and the BLM doesn't like them being there, but nobody's ever decided what they're going to do about it. One time I recalled, I thought it was really interesting because we had a couple from California that loved to ride horses that AC had met somewhere. They came out and rode with us for about a week one fall, and AC got another bunch of guys all together, and we went down in Horseshoe Canyon to get a bunch of them out of there. And there was one trail out of there called the Sandslide Trail, where from the bottom of the canyon, you go for this big sand drift. And when you got up to the top of the sand drift, you're on another bench. And from that bench, AC's dad and some other guy had went, and with jack hammers and dynamite and made a trail up that ledge so it was just like a switchback trail that went up that ledge and we went on top of the ledge and with some panels and built a trap so if we could get them cattle started up them switchbacks once they started up the switchbacks they couldn't turn around and once they got the top of the ledge they were in the corral Mm. and we actually got close to 35 head out of there one time. He says that's the most he had ever got out of there in one bunch.
2: That sounds like a cool trail. Do you think do people still use it?
1: Mm, I don't think so. Most people don't even know where it is. But uh, we got cattle to the bottom of that trail one time. There was a big steer. I don't know how old he was, but he had cancer in both eyes. And He must have weighed 1,150 pounds, which is pretty big for desert cattle. And A.C. said he remembered one time going through that canyon on a dude trip, and he caught that steer and earmarked him and castrated him. And he remembered that steer. I don't know how many years (laughs) ago that would have been. We got that steer right to the bottom of that trail, and he wouldn't go. He'd run back past us, and we were standing on Slick Rock. And he'd run back past us, and AC finally roped him, and uh, we tied him down. And I could see the wheels churning, and AC's head, and he's scratched his head, and he hollered, "This kid was helping us." Said Dan, "Go up the top of the hill there, unhook that flatbed pickup from the trailer." back it over to the ledge and tie all the ropes you can find together. <laughs> and they actually put a rope on that steer's hind legs and would pull him. There was limited amount of space they could pull on top because it was just like a little short mesa and there was a canyon on both sides. So he'd pull as far as he could pull and tie it off and take some ropes out and back up and retie it to the pickup and pull again.
2: No way.
1: <laughs> and there was a time I wish I had a picture of that cuz that big old steer was hanging completely upside down right when he got about to the top of that ledge. <laughs> and then we had to get a whole bunch of people up there and actually while the truck was pulling we kind of helped lift and got him moving to get him over the over the point of that ledge.
2: Oh my I, gosh.
1: <laughs> I'd never seen I'd never seen anything like that and probably most people wouldn't believe that. <laughs> and uh, let him lay there for a minute and hooked back onto the trailer backed the truck up to him and ran ropes through so we had ropes through the trailer and on onto the steer and as soon as he jumped up we drug him in the trailer and shut the gate <laughs> he had was, quite the ride Yes, then people from California, they were just dumbfounded. They could they'd never seen anything like that.
2: <laughs> How long did you end up working for him?
1: I worked for him just a little over 4 years. And he was sometimes hard to get along with. I mean, the 4 years I worked for him was twice the old record.
2: <laughs> he was always
1: He was always good to me.
2: That makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, there was some people he wasn't good to. I saw it sometimes and, you know, wondered why he had to act like that. But he was always good to me.
2: Yeah. What would you say the biggest thing you learned by working for him was?
1: Uh, probably the greatest thing I learned for him was to have confidence in myself that I could do things that I saw other people do that I never thought I could do before and that really helped me with my horsemanship you know and my horse training that I do now um, it was the, during the time that I worked for him that I actually went and taught my very first horsemanship clinic and it was through his encouragement you know he says do you know more than 90% of the people out there that are riding horses he says you can help them and so I took a weekend and went and taught my very first horsemanship clinic up in Provo, Utah. Not some cool. ladies' facility that had jumping horses. Um, and, you know, when he sent me to my, I'd went to a few Ray Hunt clinics and watched, but never felt like I could afford to go ride in one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he, gave me that opportunity he says you he says if you take my horses and ride in there i'll pay for you to go ride in them so that gave me a chance to go actually ride with ray hunt and that was really worth it you know for because my interest was always more in the horses than anything else on a ranch i it's always what intrigued me was trying to get a horse to work better and you know to get along with them and get them to do what i wanted them to do without a lot of hassle yeah and so that working for that four years for him really got me pointed in the right direction with my horses um since i worked for him i haven't really cowboyed full time i've day worked quite a bit uh and you know, I went in the horse training business, and for a long time, all that what horse training business was was just starting colts. Which living around small towns in the southern Utah, some of them weren't the best colts either. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of, I got a lot of people's problems I had to try and solve. Yeah. Which you know, I always wished I got better horses, and there was never any problems, but it. Helped me to learn a lot more too.
2: What well, when you think about the horses that you've rode and trained and um does anyone in particular stand out as your favorite? Oh
1: uh, yeah. There was a little sorrel stud horse that I had a I had a client from Las Vegas that he really wanted a show horse and he didn't own any other horses. <clears throat> so I found him one and i it was a stud still but I figured, well, we'll buy this horse and we'll make him a gilding and, and I'll show him for a few years. Well, this guy, although he had no mares and he didn't, he didn't have any other horses at all, he just thought it'd be really cool to own a stud horse. So he kept it a stud which usually makes them harder to show but that horse was just We actually went and bought him down to Scottsdale from Al Dunning, who's like one of the greatest horse trainers there ever was. And that horse, I could take him to an indoor arena with all kinds of scary stuff in it. He'd never seen before. Trot him around in the parking lot for 10 minutes and take him in there and show him and nothing bothered him. And I, you know, that's probably the, one of the horses I've done the best on in my whole show career, which, you know, I'm not saying a lot. I've never, you know, won anything real big. But I took him to some major cow horse events and won some money on him. Um, and he was he was just pretty impressive to for a young stud horse to be that solid.
2: Yeah.
1: One what I'd was go he show bred like? You know, there was nothing really in there that I'd ever much heard of. He went to back to some horses that, that came from the 4.6s. Uh, gray Starlight. But it was back a couple generations. You know, he wasn't really bred fantastic. Um, and they were, when we bought him, they were actually trained to be a reining horse. But he made a really nice cow horse. I mean he would do the herd work and the fence work and the reining and, and do a pretty good job at all of them.
2: What advice do you have for, um, the future generations of horsemen and women coming up?
1: Uh, one of the biggest things would be just keep an open mind and be willing to learn from anybody. You know, I've, I feel like I've learned from anybody that I've ever rode with, even if it's just learn something that I don't want to do. You know, I watch. Everywhere I go, I don't go offer advice a lot unless people ask for it, but I watch people and their horses everywhere I go and ride, and I can learn something watching anybody. You know, I can see what's working for them, or I can see what's not working for them. And I think that's one of the biggest things is to be open-minded and willing to learn. And I think once a person starts thinking they know too much, they quit learning. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and it's not just in training horses. It's like even just being a cowboy working on a ranch. I mean, you know, I've seen cowboys that could uh, get a really mad cow that didn't want to go or get her to go through a gate. But then they'd turn around on the other hand they couldn't load their horse into a trailer. <laughs> you know, and it the same principles apply, whether you're you're working with cattle or horses or dogs. You know, just a lot of the same principles apply to all of it. Kids. Kids. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, relationships in general. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Ray Hunt used to say that. He says, what I'm teaching and what I do and what I believe is not just about training horses. He says, it's just life. I always remembered that.
2: When you first um, brought him up, if we could back up just a little bit, you said that you realized you probably didn't have any business being on a horse. What was it that stood out to you when you watched that clinic that made you think about that?
1: Uh, well, he was starting Colts mostly. And he was always mounted on a fairly young horse. You know, I think the first one I saw him on was like a four-year-old. He had it in a snaffle bit. And he had McCarty reigns. And they were long. His reins were long. And I never saw his reins ever come tight. And he could pick that horse up and move it wherever he needed to go. His horse was just so focused on him and in tune with him that he never got in a pulling contest with his horse. He He never really looked like he did anything. And... It was the same way when he started a colt. I saw him from the back of his horse. I saw him mess with that colt for a minute. And then he got off and he saddled that colt and turned it loose and messed with it a little more. And he caught it and messed with it a little bit more. And then next thing I know, he was getting on that horse. And I thought, he hasn't really done anything yet. And he's getting on it. You know, because when I first learned to start a colt, I mean, we would hobble them, and we would tie their head around this way, tie their head around that way, and we would drive them and all these things, you know, so that maybe we had a chance when we got on them to kind of direct them and keep from, you know, getting hurt and getting bucked off. And He didn't do any of that. He messed with that horse enough, and and at the time, I didn't really see the whole picture It took me years to see the whole picture, but in just a few minutes messing with that horse, he developed that connection with that horse, and that horse didn't forget it. I mean, he would get on that horse with a halter on it. First time it ever been ridden, and he'd pick up that lead rope and pull on that halter, and that horse would just give and go where he pointed it. You know, on the first ride, he rode it in the round curl for Maybe five minutes, and he opened the gate and rolled it out in the big arena and was loping around, turning it, stopping it. Uh, he Even backed it up first ride, and I thought, it takes me a month to get him that far.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it was just I'd I'd never seen anything like that.
2: That's and pretty
1: cool. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, you know. and I don't. I went to a. Symposium in February in Vegas, and it had Andrea Papani and Sean Florida, which are both guys that have won over six million dollars each in reigning. And then there was another guy there. His name was Nick Dowers, and he was young. He was like in his thirties, and he started a couple colts and talked a lot about stuff and come to find out, you know, he, he had learned from people who had learned from Ray Hunt. He went to Feather River college in California and took the horsemanship class. And Brian Newbert was a guest teacher at that class. He said a big share of the time. And he went, he went and followed Brian around for a while, starting Colts. And uh, that guy was, closest thing I've ever seen to be in another Ray hunt the way he started a colt.
2: what was his name
1: his name was Nick Dowers okay and he right now he's one of the big names in the rain cow horse industry he's won the snapple bit fraternity once and he actually won road to the horse twice which is the big colt starting competition
2: Yeah. That's pretty fun to watch.
1: Oh, that guy was so cool. I mean, it just to watch him reminded me of a lot of stuff I'd heard, but I'd kind of gotten away from. Mhm. That's, that's helping me now.
2: Well, I don't need to take up your whole evening, but if there's any other memories or any other stories that you want to share, feel free. I can tell you one about
1: somebody you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are always fun. <laughs>
1: We went out one time for a weekend. It was when I had quit working for AC Ecker, but I still lived in Hanksville. There was me and Daniel and Justin Meekum, who you know (laughs) and I don't know, three or four other people. We camped out on the spur which was on A.C. Ecker's permit. There was wild cattle out there and a pretty good herd of burros. And our intention when we went out there more than anything else was probably to harass them burrows a little. So uh, we caught a burrow and you can actually break them burros to lead in just a few minutes because they learn how to <laughs> make that rope. They learn how to make that rope quit choking them and they'll follow you. So we got one following us pretty good, and a few people had took turns riding it and playing with it, and we were done. We were going to turn it loose, and Justin had the rope, and I guess he just assumed, since we had been playing with it for so long, that it was gentle. (laughs) So he rode up to it and reached down to take his rope off of it, and that thing grabbed his leg and would not let go.
2: Oh, no. no.
1: I mean, it was, <laughs> he was he was slugging it in the head. He was doing everything he could think of to get that burrow to let go of him. And it finally, finally let go. I said, <laughs> we got around the campfire that night, and he got a couple of drinks in him and had to show us all these bruises too. But <laughs> – <laughs> that was, that was uh, a fun trip,
2: though.
1: Uh, we just went down there and played for a weekend.
2: Uh, I Saw a lot of country.
1: That. Yeah, <laughs> went rolled into Horseshoe Canyon, looked at Indian paintings, chased burros around a little bit. That's it was mean, pretty fun. Yeah.
2: Would you say that's some of the coolest country you've ever been in?
1: It is it always kind of intrigued me um and now it's to me it's different because a c ecker and his heritage was a big part of it you yeah. know and and you know it's not his family anymore, so to me it's it's different now it's it was always a special place to me, but a c would have never sold it. Yeah. That's that was his whole life was the cows and the horses and the dogs in the country.
2: It's a pretty cool life once you understand it. I think.
1: Yes, it is. It's a lot different. I have a lot different life now. I mean, now I, I'm brand inspector, so I still kind of get to work with people in the livestock industry, which is good. And I tra- and I train a few horses after work and try and go show them. So I have a good life and it's still somewhat being a cowboy.
2: And you're doing what you want to do. Sounds like that's pretty yeah. cool. You can make money. Yeah.
1: yeah, I enjoy it. You know, no matter what you, no matter how much you love what you do, there's days you don't feel like doing it. Mhm. But most people don't even have that opportunity to like do something they love to do for a living, so
2: Yeah.
1: I feel pretty fortunate that way.
2: I feel like it's really eye opening and pretty cool to be able to talk to people who are able to do what they love to do for a living. Like I think yeah. it just shows it that you can do it. It is possible if you're right. willing to work for it.
1: And People, whether it's being a cowboy or a horse trainer or what it is, if you find people that love what they do for a living. There's something different about them. People, I think. You know, they. uh, I don't know, different presence about them. They're just more content. They're happier.
2: Yeah. Content is a good word. Yeah. For that. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you again for visiting with me twice. My yeah.
1: my pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure.
2: Um, do you, um if you don't mind, you'd want to tell people where they can find some of your videos if they're interested in learning some horsemanship
0: from you.
1: Sure, I have a I have a Facebook page that I haven't been very good lately about putting videos on there, but it's just called Don Lindsay Horsemanship. Um, you can still find if you search under videos you can still find I just I put short video clips of like here's how to do this or here's how to do this or just a lot of them are just me talking basic philosophy about horses and I have a website where you can go and there's a link on there that'll take you to a page where you can buy some videos some videos I have for sale and they're pretty inexpensive or I mean, there's four videos on there. You can buy all four of them for like $40, you know, and it's not a like membership deal or it's not like random. I mean, you buy them and you can actually download them to your computer or whatever, and you've got them forever. Mm -hmm. And and that's just uh, dlhorsemanship.com. And you can find, you know, about anything about me on there. There's a link to my Facebook page on there. Um, on my Facebook page, or you can find several links to my website. Well,
2: cool.
1: I never, I never thought twenty years ago when I was thirty years ago when I was out the roost cowboy and I'd ever have a website or I didn't even know what a website <laughs> was then. Huh. I don't. I like to help people. And that's more what I do it for. I don't sell enough videos to get rich, or yeah but you know if i've if I've helped a few people that's that satisfies me
2: okay, well, thank you so much.
1: You bet it's always good to talk to you,
2: yeah, you too.